So I don't know if you guys um, are paying attention to like, you know, like the the Democratic, you know, like primaries or what's going on, like the debates and things like that. Um, I don't want, I don't get political or anything, right? But um, so I I've been so oh, actually I'll just full disclosure. The only reason I became interested, I I don't really, you know, I'm I'm I'm. Uh, interested from uh, from an arm's length usually in these kinds of matters but um you know like there's andrew yang you guys know that it's like an asian you know asian american uh candidate right and so that's how i initially like months ago i got interested because i was like oh is this like this is a random asian guy you know in here and i started paying attention but you know and I'm not endorsing or not endorsing <laughs> that person. I'm just saying that's how I got interested. And that, but it's 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 always interesting when you listen to politicians talk because they bring up these things that are happening in the world, right? Whether it's and typically it's it's these typical things. It's like unemployment. You know, what are the unemployment levels? What's like GDP at? You know, how is our economy doing? Uh, and they'll bring up like foreign policy and they'll bring up like how people are feeling and they'll talk about certain people in certain regions of the country and like what's going on in their lives. And one of the things that was very interesting to me was the idea that, because I heard this come up a couple times, but the idea that our, you know, our, our GDP is at like record highs. If you don't know what that is. Nobody knows what it is. It's some measure, you know, some economic, some random economic metric that's supposed to tell us that we're doing well. Um, but the the mortality rate basically has has gone up the past three years, or well, I should say actually, life expectancy has gone down for three years in a row in this country. I was actually reading about it and. The life expectancy of people 18 to basically 40, like 39, has has uh, gone down dramatically. Like the mortality rate has gone up dramatically in that age range. Basically, people who are in the physical, who are supposed to be in like the physical and mental prime of their lives, uh, you know, op opioid addiction is like really high in those levels. And uh, in, in that range, it's gone up a lot. Suicidality has gone up a lot. And it's kind of crazy. You know, it's crazy to think that when our country is supposed to be doing really well, at least by one metric, like some economic metric, our actual lives, it feels like it's not better. Right, And that's something that when I heard that, the reason it was interesting to me is because it feels that feels right. It doesn't feel like life is getting better in a lot of ways. Like sometimes when you look around, it doesn't feel like generally things are getting better. Even though we're supposed to be being you know, more well-off, we're supposed to be richer, we're supposed to have more things. Like look how much technology advances every year. It seems like every year, like I can't believe that, uh, I, I can't believe the amount that technology has advanced just in my lifetime. It's, it's incredible to think that like when I was young, like I didn't have a cell phone, you know, I still used like a landline. I had a Rolodex, you know, where you scroll through and like people's numbers are in there. Like that, that was the way that we communicate. Like 
you know, my brother had a pager. I, I never had a pager because there was no one to page or to page me. <laughs> but because um, I wasn't cool. But like, you know, that, that was kind of the world back then. And it's advanced so much. And yet it doesn't seem like we're like happier. Do you ever feel like that? Like, do you ever get that sense that, like, man, it seems like things are supposed to be so much better, but they just don't feel better, at least in terms of what's happening in the world? Now, that's incredibly important at a time like this, at least in a season like this when we're stepping into, like, Christmas season, right? Because that idea magnifies what can be either a lot of happiness or a lot of unhappiness, right? Coming into this season, because Christmas, let's face it, is still like, and I'm not even talking about just, I'm not talking about within the context of Christianity. I'm just talking about within the world. Christmas is still like the king of holidays, right? Christmas is the one time where, you know, you you teachers, you're off for like two, three weeks, right? Like you get the big break, right? Kids get the break, Right, generally, like people go on vacation or something, like you start thinking about it gets cold and you start thinking about either going to warmer temperatures or you start thinking about you're gonna stay in, like you start thinking about like family, you start thinking about gifts, it's a time when people spend money, like there are all these kinds of expectations that get built up. And so it can be set up for like something really great. Or you can be set up for, like, huge disappointment. And for us in the church, Christmas obviously is. It's a very important time for us because we, it allows us to really focus on the crux of our belief, Jesus. And it gives us this opportunity to be pointed back to the expectation and the hope that really matters. Right, and so what we want to do, because we want to combat some of that, I think that what we feel like all the stuff in the world is not as right as people want to claim that it is. And so we don't want to put all our hope in that stuff. Like, I don't want to put my hope in some dude or some, you know, woman who is going to go into office and fix everything. I don't want to put my hope into just some gifts or some things that might happen or some fun thing that's supposed to happen or some vacation or some this or some that. Like, we want our hope to be pointed back to Christ. That's really what Advent is about. Advent just means, like, the coming or arrival. It's the season in which we take time to meditate upon the coming of Jesus into the world. And so we've titled this series, uh, The Incarnation. We talked about some other names that were weird. (laughs) But incarnation, the incarnation is the theological term that we use to describe God becoming human. As if you never knew what that was, that's what it means. That's what it references uh, the word incarnation means the act of being made flesh, right, from the Latin, and then Latin took over everything, and that's where we got all our theological terms. But we're going to be talking about, um, so over this next month, we'll be looking at what the incarnation means, basically why Jesus came, why Jesus actually became flesh, and what that means for us. Okay, and so um, if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, and um, we'll read the whole chapter. We'll take it piece by piece. 
Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. And this is God's word, and it says, Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So, Real quick, before we move on, basically, um, the author of Hebrews, he's talking about, he's kind of comparing the old high priest and the new high priest, the new high priest, which has, you know, which is established previously to be Jesus, saying, we have such a high priest who is seated at, you know, up high in heaven, at the, at the, the throne of the majesty in heaven, not on earth. Right, and it talks, it kind of references like this tent that's set up on earth or the temple set up on earth. So there was something set up on earth, right? The tent, the tabernacle, which was what the Israelites had when they were wandering through the wilderness. It was kind of like a mobile temple, right? Then they built the actual temple, the, the temple where it was, you know, in Jerusalem. And they would go there to worship God. That's where the presence of God was. That's where the high priest would do the stuff. He would offer the sacrifices for the sins of the people. And he's saying, okay, that was the old way, but we have a better high priest in Jesus because he's not doing it here on this earth. He's doing it up in heaven before God. The things on earth, the kind of the old way, right? The tent, the tabernacle, the temple, the high priest on earth, that's a shadow, that's a copy of what's up in heaven. Right, so even if you read through, you know, when you read through Exodus or you read through like, you know, Deuteronomy or Numbers, you read through some of these things, or you you read through, you know, whatever, like Samuel when they're erecting the temple and all this kind of stuff, like all the things there, they're meant to be a shadow of what's up in heaven. So when it's designed a certain way and it's this many cubits, you know, it's inlaid with gold, you know, and there's these like seraphim and cherubim, you know, and there's all these kind of things. It's meant to be some kind of shadow, some kind of copy of what's happening in heaven. And he goes on. He says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, for he finds fault with them when he says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now, he says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant that he mediates is better. It's enacted on better promises. So when Jesus comes, he's the, the kind of the better high priest. When he enacts a new covenant, it's better than the old covenant. Now, when the Bible talks about old covenant, what does it mean? The old covenant was 
essentially, we can just think about it as the law, the law of Moses. The old covenant was a conditional agreement that God made with the Israelites. So they were required to keep, they were required to obey God and keep the law, and in return, he protected and blessed them. Okay, so to kind of, you know, it was still, uh, salvation and life was still by faith. However, there was an expectation to be committed to the law by faith as well. And so kind of here's some promises from the Old Covenant. I'm going to go forward a little bit. We'll come back to that. So Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 28 goes through kind of the blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. This is Deuteronomy 28 says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. And it kind of goes on and on. And I'll summarize the next kind of several verses. But it says basically, it, uh, it details all these blessings. It says your children will be blessed, your livestock will be blessed, your farming will be blessed, your land will be blessed. Your, it says your basket and your kneading bowl, your barns. Basically, you'll have food. God will provide all these things for you. God will give you victory over your enemies. So even this physical safety and security is promised. Then if you, um, actually if you, and then when you go down to later, even verses 9 and 10, it says, The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So he even says that you'll have this reputation even in the world that you're God's people. So in summary, the blessings for obedience under the old covenant were financial security. He'll provide for you. You'll have food. Your barns will be filled. Physical protection. He'll protect you from your enemies. And then status in the world. All the other countries will look at you and they'll be like, you guys are, you guys are the best nation. Right? And then he goes and he talks about the curses for disobedience. It says, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all your commandments and statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field and your children will be cursed, your livestock will be cursed, your farming will be cursed, your land will be cursed, your basket and your kneading bowl, your barns, you'll have no food, you'll have no, you know, all your enemies will overtake you. But actually it even goes on more for... Um, For the curses, it says, The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. You shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies. There shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. Right? So the blessings are financial security, physical protection, status in the world. The curses are for disobedience, financial insecurity, Physical vulnerability, they would be conquered. 
They would have no status in the world. They would not be feared. And there's also this idea that they would be blind and all their work would be useless. Because they'll try to do stuff. They'll build a house, but somebody else lives in it. They'll betroth the wife, but someone else is going to like sleep with them. So why did Jesus come, according to Hebrews? Jesus came to establish this better covenant, a new better covenant. It's implied that the new one is better than the old one because why have a new one if the new one's going to be same as the old one? Now, how is the new covenant better than the old covenant? And this is kind of our point for today. But the old covenant offered God's blessings, but the new covenant offers God's presence. See, the old covenant offers God's blessings, but the new covenant offers God's presence. Now, if you read on here, in verse 10, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Under the old covenant, they were promised the blessings of God, right? Money, security, status. That's what they were promised. Money or the equivalent of money, food, security, physical protection, status in the world. People would fear them. They would know them. They were promised the blessings of God, but under the new covenant, we are promised the presence of God. Now, a few implications, okay, about what's better. Because the idea is the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Right? That's the whole point of this whole passage, right? The new covenant, that's why Jesus came, to mediate a new, better covenant. He's a new, better high priest. He mediates a new, better covenant. This covenant's better. So implication one, intimacy with God is better than items from God. Intimacy with God is better than items from God. See, the stuff, the blessings, that's the shadow. Food, friends, home, security, popularity, status in the world, it's all great things. But if we're fixated on the shadow, we can easily miss the substance. You ever like, like, you know, when you think about like a, a movie, like a monster movie or something. You know, Godzilla or like King Kong, I don't know, Jurassic Park, you know, whatever. Those kind of things, right, where there's these big creatures. You know, there's always like a scene where you see the shadow of the creature, right? You know, like the shadow of the creature is like appears on the wall or something like that, right? And what is that supposed to be? Like, what is that supposed to mean? It means 
you know, everybody knows what it means. And even when you watch as an audience member, if it's like a scary movie or something, and around before you get to the corner, you see the shadow of someone. You know, what does it mean? It means like, oh, shoot, like you're anticipating what's going to happen next because the shadow is the sign of what's to come. The shadow is, is like the preview, right, of, of what? Of the person casting the shadow. And I, but I feel like we get it kind of confused sometimes, right, because we're so fixated on the shadow. We're so fixated on the blessings, you know, that that becomes what we think is the substance. Even though the shadow is not meant, like, you're not supposed to look at a shadow and be like, dang, what a shadow. You know, like, wow, that's some amazing shadow right there. Like, no, right? Because a shadow's like vague. Like, you can't really tell what that is. But if it's a big shadow, if somebody's casting a huge shadow, then what do you do? You turn around and look at what the, what's casting the shadow. Right, you look back and you're like, oh, dang, this, this, this dude is eight foot tall, right? Or this, it's King Kong or it's Godzilla or it's some kind of huge creature. Something awesome is casting this great shadow. But sometimes we're so fixated on the shadow. Do you believe, church, that God's faithful presence is better better than his blessings. Right? Like if Jesus just showed up, if he just came here, right, comes through this door that no one's supposed to come through, right, just walks in, and then he's, this double door's right here, and he walks in, and he's like, hey, I got two things to say. I want to give two things out today. First thing, I want to give out a billion dollars, and he's got it in cash. It's in a wheelbarrow, and he's carrying it behind him, and he rolls it in, and he just rolls it out, right? He just kind of falls on the ground. You know, stacks of $100 bills just like all over the floor. He's like, I want to give that away to somebody. And I'm looking for someone to be present with. Like, I'm also looking for someone that I just want to, like, hang out with. I want to be with you all the time. Someone I can help. Someone I can empower. Someone I can advise. Someone I can just, like, be present in your life. Like, if in your heart of hearts you choose the cash, and look, you only you know, right? I don't know what you choose. You don't maybe know what you choose. Like, you could say one thing or the other, but what would you really choose if that was verifiably Jesus who walked in and just, like, wheelbarrowed out this billion dollars? And look, maybe we, I think many of us, we might think that billion dollars is more useful. I could do a lot of things with that. I could pay off debt with that. I could buy a house with that. I could help my parents with that. I could help poor people with that. I could help the city with that. But you would be selling yourself short. The living presence of God is worth much more, much more than a billion dollars. Much more then a billion dollars, then a hundred billion dollars, then a trillion dollars, then everything in the world. Like, does that sound ridiculous? Does that sound like I'm just throwing out a Christianese kind of thing and just saying something? Or do you believe that? Like, do you, like, when I say that, do you want to shout out amen, but you're just not doing it because we're kind of conservative church and we don't do that? 
Or do you not say amen because you don't really know if you want to say amen? You don't really know if you believe that. On paper, it sounds good. What about in practice? What about in your life? That living, faithful presence worth more than a billion dollars, worth much more than a billion dollars, is available to us anywhere, anytime. See, because the politicians come out, and do you know what they want to say is like, we'll give money because money will solve the problem. We'll create a program because a program will solve the problem. Elect me because I will solve the problem. Because the problem is that guy who's in office, and I will solve that problem. The problem is these people don't have money. I'll give them money, and that will solve the problem. The problem is, you know, that uh, we don't have a program, and I'll create a program, and that will solve the problem. But I guarantee you, none of those things will solve the problem. Christ came to solve that problem so that he could be in your life. That living, faithful presence is available to us anywhere, anytime. When your kids are unbearable, you feel like you've hit your limit. right? When your husband or wife or your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whoever, your best friend, they don't get it. Do you ever feel like that? Man, they just don't get it. Like you talk... And it seems like they're getting it right because they're like nodding their head. And it seems like they're looking at you and then they're listening. And then they open their mouth and you're like, dang it, you didn't get it, right? Like you just, ah, nope. That's not from personal experience. I just was throwing that out there. Um, and that's when the presence of God is available to us, when no one seems like they get it, when your parents don't get it, when your friends don't get it, when you kind of feel alone. Trust me, many people feel like that. Today, the living, faithful presence of God is available. It's real, and it's better than the shadow. It's more powerful than the blessings. That's the beauty of the new covenant. That's the beauty of what it means that Jesus took on flesh and set foot on this ground. There is no tent. There is no temple. He doesn't live here in this church. He is available to each of us to be in our hearts at any moment of any day. The only barrier to entry for God is sin. And he's handled that in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So take advantage of it. Take advantage of it as much as you can. As soon as you get up, while you're brushing your teeth, while you're in the shower, while you're eating breakfast, while you're in the drive on the way to work, while you're stuck in traffic, when you're at work, you're confused, you're frustrated, you're tired, sick of your boss, on the way home, you're eating dinner, you're watching TV, you know, you're going out, you're shopping, you're meeting up with people. Like, take advantage of the presence of God. Like, I'm saying this sincerely. Like, take advantage of the presence of God. Like, pray for what you should watch on TV. You're like, come on, that doesn't make sense, you know. Like, I already know what I'm supposed to, like, I already know what I'm going to watch. Take advantage of the presence of God. Ask God what you should buy. Ask God what you should eat. And I know, you're like, oh, that's ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. This faithful, intimate presence is what God offers us every day. Okay, now, quickly a couple other things. Okay, now, here, there really are three things. One is the presence of God, which is emphasized. 
you know, it says, know the Lord for they shall all know me. No one, will, no one will have to say, know the Lord. And what's being spoken here is specifically like the idea of, because in the Old Testament, they had to, uh, you know, they would like literally write the laws. You know, they would have like phylacteries, for example. They would write the laws on their foreheads. You know, and they would, they would keep them to memorize them, like commit them to memory. And, of course, it was a verbal culture, so that's what they would do. They would commit the laws to memory, you know, more than 600 laws in the Old Testament. And he's saying, no, beyond that head knowledge, there will be this intimate knowledge. Right? But he also says a couple other things. Another thing he says is that I will remember their sins no more. We'll be merciful toward their iniquities and remember their sins no more. So here's a second implication from this text. The forgiveness of sin is better than the fixing of sins. Now, the Old Testament was all about fixing sin. Like, it wasn't in the spirit, but the way that it was practiced was fixing sins, essentially, right? Now, it was symbolic of something that would happen later. But every time you sinned, you had to do something for that sin. You had to pay something. So you'd bring a sacrifice, and remember, this is the Old Testament, right? Like today, if you don't feel like reading the Word, what do you do? You just don't read it, right? Like in the Old Testament, though, things weren't like that, right? Like if Jesus showed up and he's like, like imagine ex- the Exodus. You guys know the Exodus, like the ten plagues? You guys remember the last plague? What's the last plague? It's the death of the firstborn, right? So you literally had to paint some stuff. Like you had to kill the lamb, eat the lamb, paint the blood on your doorpost. You don't do that. Your kid could die. Now, if, you, if God came to you and was like, hey, you know, the angel of the Lord is going through town. You know, it's like going through Fullerton or like Cerritos. You know, I'm coming through. Make sure you read your Bible tonight. If you don't read your Bible, someone in your house is going to be dead tomorrow. You do it, right? Like, you know, you don't be like, oh, pretty tired though today, right? It's like, you know, like 12 to, you have midnight to midnight. That's the 24-hour period you have. You're not going to be like, oh, let me just catch one more episode. You know, like, let me get one more in. I got some time. It's like 11.38. You know, like, I got about, you know, 22 more minutes. Like, no, you're not going to do that, right? And that was the Old Testament. Right? Because you got to fix sin. Like, when stuff happens, you sin, you better bring that animal. Like, you better be bringing that cow next day, you know, the goat, whatever. Like, you better be bringing whatever you're bringing to be sacrificed. Because that was the kind of law that they lived under. You could be stoned for breaking those laws. Not only could God strike you down, the people could, because that was written into the law for, like, disobedience to your parents. That's kind of the fixing of sin, because that's what sin demands. That is what is demanded for your sin. The law illustrates that. Forgiveness of sin, on the other hand, This is what forgiveness is. Tim Keller says this, Mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer. It must be free. So real forgiveness has to be free to the person who has done wrong. If the wrongdoer has to do something to merit it, then it isn't mercy. But forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting it. So we don't pay for our forgiveness before God. We can't. Only God can. That's what makes forgiveness powerful, doesn't it? 
Remember, and I, I talked about this at retreat, but remember the case of Amber Geiger, um, this former Dallas police officer who was convicted of murder for shooting Botham Jean in his apartment. And then there was this, and it was an incredibly like viral story, right? But her brother, I mean, I'm sorry, his brother, the victim's brother, forgives the police officer and says, I can speak for myself. I forgive you. I know that if you go to God, he can forgive you. I love you. I want good for you. I want the best for you. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. And then he asked to hug her, the person who murdered his brother, and he hugs her. And it's like a just, it's very moving. And that is completely unmerited. That's the picture of forgiveness. Now, one, that's what Jesus offers you. That's what Jesus offers us when we first come to him. That's what Jesus offers us repeatedly for sins. Two, that way of forgiveness is what Jesus offers you to step into. I see people carrying around unforgiveness. And by the way, I know what that's like because I've done it. But like, just so you know, okay, like if there's somebody you, you, you're not forgiving, and you kind of carry that around, you're only hurting yourself. You know, it's kind of like, like you get a cut. Like uh, imagine somebody like Randy cut me or something. I don't know what, this makes no sense. But, you know, we're just, he got real mad at me. And he, <laughs> this, is, this is a little crazy. But, you know, he's a, and he cuts me, like, on the hand. Or, I don't know. He gets a pencil or something, cuts me, right? I have a cut right here. Yeah, I have a cut. It's barely visible. He paper cuts me, okay? He gets a paper, and then he cut. I got a paper cut right here, okay? It's, like, barely visible. But do you know what ends up happening? Like, what I say is, you know what? To punish Randy for cutting me, I am not going to treat this wound. I'm just going to let it stay there, and it just stays, right? And then eventually what happens, it, like, festers, right? And then it gets infected, okay? And then it starts looking weird. It's actually not my hand. Let's say he cut me right here on my cheek, right? And then it starts looking weird because discolored, you know, and then it starts growing. It's, like, getting green and stuff, right? And then, you know what happens? Like, people start noticing it, right? Because it's just right, it's a cut right here on my face. And it was, like, invisible at first, but then now it's, like, very noticeable. People around me start noticing it, start smelling, right? All of a sudden, Boomy's like, what is wrong with, like, what happened, right? I'm like, Randy, cut me. And you know what I'm doing? I'm punishing him <laughs> by not treating this wound. I'm not punishing him. I'm punishing myself. I'm punishing everyone around me by bearing this, by refusing to treat this wound, by carrying this unforgiveness. It has become this infected wound that affects everything that I do, and people can see it on me because it affects me. It affects the way that I do things. See, because Jesus doesn't want us to live that way, the, way, the fixing sin way, the, well, yeah, I'll forgive you if you do this and this and this. I'll forgive you if you've really changed. I'll forgive you if you promise to never do it again and you actually never do it again. I'll forgive you if. That's the fixing sin's way. The forgiveness of sin's way is I will absorb this heart because that's what Christ has done for me. 
And I only bring that up because this, this season is an opportunity to forgive. Um, it doesn't require religious acts to do it. You don't got to bring a goat and kill it. You just need to let the forgiveness of Christ lead you into forgiveness. Is implication number two. Implication number three, the influence of God's spirit over our lives is better than the checks on our checklist. The influence of God's spirit over our lives is better than the checks on our checklist. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. You know, and this is, for us, we have what's called this, this indwelling Holy Spirit. Right, we have this deposit. If you are in Christ, if you give your life to Christ, you are given immediately this deposit into your heart. It's the Holy Spirit. The old covenant offered God's rules, God's law, the letter of the law, this, this, and this. Memorize it all, study it, learn it, teach it to your kids, talk about it, debate the minutia of the law. And that's how they lived. And the New Testament, he says, I'm not going to do that. They're not going to memorize all the laws. I'm going to write them on their hearts. They will know it in here. I will grant them my spirit. I will change them, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Now, the spirit's better, but we like the law better, generally. We like the law better because it makes us feel better about ourselves. You know, the law misunderstood when we misunderstand the law uh, it's, a, it's a way to bypass real confession and repentance because all you have to do to feel better about your sin is find someone who's worse than you, right? And then you'll feel better. This is kind of like, this is where the internet lives, right? The reason the internet hates everything is because it makes them feel better about themselves. And me too. Like when I'm on the internet, that's how I feel too, right? I'm like on Twitter or something. I'm like, yeah, what the, this guy, this guy deserves to die. You know, like whatever. That's just like the culture of the internet, right? And you ever wonder like why? Why is everything like that? Because it makes them feel better. I'm not as bad as that guy, at least. I'm not as bad as this racist person. I'm not as bad as this ignorant person. I'm not as bad as this other person who's just like certainly... They're not doing it right. And then we do it to each other too, right? It's like, well, these are all the ways in which I'm better than so-and-so. That's easy to do because you can always find somebody who is like, quote-unquote, worse than you, especially when you write the laws for what's good and what's bad. What's hard to do is to say, God, you're in charge. Like, I'm going to study the word, and whatever I discover there, I'm going to follow it even if I don't like it, even if I don't agree with it, even if it sounds like wrong to me or my wisdom or what society says. You know, and there's like a phrase that goes around a lot today. It's like the wrong side of history. You know, like don't be on the wrong side of history. Now, there's two problems with that phrase that I find. One, history's not over. Two, who determines the right and the wrong side of history. Because when it is over, there will only be one person judging. It's not going to be consensus. Because that's what people think today in society. Like Consensus decides. So let me give you one example from the Bible. Do you guys remember the flood? You know, Noah, when he built the ark? You know, which we kind of say is like a, it's like a children's thing, right? And too, you know, like 
Mike, you know, Mike and Josiah, they have books. It's like, all oh, the animals are going on the boat, you know, like, and all the, and the boat's floating around, right? And I heard one pastor say this, but like, you know what's not in the book? All the people drowning in the water. Because literally, the reason God sent the flood was because everybody on earth was wrong. Everybody in the world was on the wrong side of history, except for one family. And they weren't great either, right? Because when they got out of the boat, they started doing the strangest things, right? Some weird stuff. It's much more difficult to say, God, I'm going to trust your spirit and follow your word rather than trust my own interpretation of the rules. You should definitely trust in your own relationship with, like, and look, I'm not saying this. I'm not saying, like, pray today, all of us, and then you're going to be like, tomorrow, like, oh, I'm going to drastically change my life, you know, because I prayed yesterday, Sunday, and now, you know what, the Spirit is in me, and I just feel like I'm going to just do something crazy. Now, here's what I'd say. Don't do that. The reason you shouldn't do that is because you haven't been doing that, right? And it could be anything. Like, you can get a feeling to, like, we're, we're going to pray in a little bit, right? And if you pray just then and you feel like God told you something and then you just run out and do it, like, you shouldn't do that because you're not practiced in actually trusting God all the time. You're just trying to do it once in a sea of maybe not doing it. I mean, for, I'm sure some of you are doing it. Some of us might not be doing it. I don't want to, you know, I don't know what's going on in your personal life. But you don't want to just all of a sudden do that, right? Really what you want to do is do that all the time. You want to try to trust in God all the time. So everywhere you go, everything you see is not like stuff that's bad or like it's all going to fall apart or like I don't feel good. But what you're going to see is like opportunity for God to do miracles. You're going to see things that you're thankful about. You're going to see ways in which you can bless people. You're going to see every challenge behind every challenge is an opportunity for God to do something. And often when the challenge is greater, what you see is the potential for God to do something greater. So one last thing I'll say before I close. We tend to measure the progress of our lives solely by what can be categorized as blessing. Financial security, protection, status in the world. Right? How much money I have, how safe I and my family feel, and what people around me think about me based on my personality, my job, my family, and my stuff. So here's a phrase we really need to be careful of. I'm doing this because it's the next thing I'm supposed to do. You know, like if God, if you go to heaven, right? If you're to, God forbid, you die. And you stand before God, and God says, why'd you do this? Why'd you do this job? Why'd you move to that place? Why'd you get married? You know, why'd you have a kid? Well, because it was, like, the next thing to do. Like, I don't know about you, but, and I'm only saying this as, a, as to warn us, right? Because hopefully we won't die today or tomorrow. But f- if it were me, and and. I stand before God, and I think there might be, there will be probably things in my life where that is my answer. But I don't want that to be my answer. I don't want to tell God, like, oh, you know, why, if he says, like, why did you become a pastor? And I'm just like, well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, not a lot of other stuff to do. I don't know what am I supposed to do. You know, what am I supposed to do? 
It's like Talbot was right there, and you know, it's church. You know, like I don't want to say that, right? Like I don't want that to be my answer. I mean, that's not my answer, but you know, I don't, I don't want that to be my answer. Or well, why'd you get married? Mm, you know, there's nothing else to do. Like you know, <laughs> like that's not that's that's not a great answer. You know, Micah really likes uh, shadows. So like whenever we go in the parking lot. You know, like whenever we're leaving somewhere, we're going somewhere, and you know the sun's out, and so it casts a shadow on the ground, and so he'll point out the differences. He'll be like, "Oh, look, you know, there's Umma's shadow. It's like really tall. There's Appa's shadow. You know, it's like a big shadow. You know, I can hide in Appa's shadow. Like, thanks a lot, Micah. But, you know, and then uh, you know, he's like, "Oh, there's my shadow. He's looking at his own shadow, right? And he tries to like shape his shadow." You know, because it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's like it's something kids do, right? And so he'll go, and he'll be, like, trying to move around, and he wants his shadow to be bigger. So, and, you know, you can manipulate, like, your position relative to the sun, right, to, to make a different shape shadow. You just move his arms or whatever. He'll, like, move around. And, um, you know, the problem is you, you, you don't know exactly it's hard. It's like an inexact science, right? Shaping your shadow because you don't know exactly where the you know sun is. Like you kind of know, but you don't know how when you move it's going to affect what the appearance of your shadow is. See, many of us, and I don't mean us like us. I just mean us like in the world today. We are trying to live like we're shaping our shadows. You know, we're operating kind of aimlessly, unsure of what move, like what the move I make is going to result in. And then based on what my shadow appears, I, I'll move again. I'll change again. Right? Some of us do that on a very micro level. Like I'll pray today and then see what happens. And if it doesn't work, I'm not going to pray tomorrow. Like, I'll read the Word today, and if it doesn't work, I'm not going to read the Word tomorrow, or it's going to become less important in my life. You know, and then some of us do it on more macro levels, you know, like choosing a job or where to live, you know, and I'm kind of like, ah, oh, well, you know, it's okay, because the shadow is just like how I feel. You know, if I'm happy or not, and I'm just looking at the shadow and kind of doing this weird dance, trying to see what appears. But the thing is, God is not interested in helping you Shape your shadow. God is the one who casts the shadow. Right? Like, our goal should not be what my shadow appears. It should be how do I get inside the one who is casting the massive shadow? God is offering us the substance of his faithful presence today, right now. Right? This, is what, this is what one of the reasons we come to church, so we can be reminded of this, so we can shut out the noise of the world, so we can get to this place where that's where we want to be. Take it. You know, don't delay. Make the most of the opportunity. You don't need Black Friday. You don't need Cyber Monday. Jesus is the best deal you'll ever make, never goes on sale. <laughs> he is of infinite value, right? And it's free. Now, uh, what we're going to do, actually, is we're going um, to take some time in communion.
You know, communion is an ordinance that we do, uh, something that we do to remember the gracious and loving sacrifice of Christ. Um, and how can we step into uh, communion today uh, in particular? Well, you know, first I want to read this passage kind of as a reminder of what communion is and what we do. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 25. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And, you know, one thing I'd, I'd like to say is rather than measuring the progress of our lives on the blessing, right? So, like, how much money I make or where I live or what my family's at or where I, where I, what status I have, um, I want you to kind of just ask yourself a couple questions. One, how well do I know God? You know, like, Really? Not like what you know about God. Like, how well do you know God? If Jesus showed up here, how confident would you be to be like, Jesus! Like, yes. You know, like, that's my, that's my boy right there, you know, and then go and, like, give him a hug? Or would you be like, shoot. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know if he knows me. Like, I'm sure he knows me because he's God <laughs> and he knows everything, but I don't, like, know him that well. Because this is how I think we should, we should kind of gauge the progress of our life. And if you know Jesus well, if you know him better than you knew him a year ago, like, that's progress. Who cares what you're doing in your job? Who cares where your family's at? That, that's progress. And the second thing we should ask ourselves is, how much am I becoming like Jesus? cares how much money you make, who cares where you live, who cares about all that stuff. How much am I, within the context of my life, my job, my relationships, you know, my interactions, am I becoming like Jesus? If you want to kind of pursue that faithful presence as we step into Advent, I'm going to offer this kind of Advent prayer. Okay? Uh, and I got, I got this from a book, Advent book. I it's from John Piper. I pared it down a little because it was, like, really wordy. <laughs> but, um, it says, uh, the joy that I want to pursue in this season is not the hope of getting rich with things from you. I have not come to you for your things but for yourself. And I want to intensify this desire and step into it by giving away the things I might enjoy in the hope of enjoying you more, not the things for you are my greatest treasure. And I will invite you into something for Advent. One of two things. One, give something away. You know, it might be something you actually own. It might just, it might be money. You know, but, but give something away to either someone in need or maybe even just someone you love in the church and not just like, not like your mom, you know, like someone you were going to give a gift to already. Like I'm talking about, you know, outside of that for the sake of Christ. Or, because maybe you don't have money, fast something you enjoy. 
You'll give something away that you enjoy, like money. I'm sure we all enjoy money too, so that counts. Or fast something that you enjoy so as to say, Jesus, you are my greatest treasure. So if you want to, you know, and so we're going to step into communion. If you want to do that, like for those of you who want to commit to that, you know, I mean, everyone can take communion. Are going to do that or not? You know, so don't, don't, don't make that the like reason you do it or don't do it. But I mean, for those of us, some of us, if we do want to step into that, this communion can be an act of faith to step into that. But, you know, I'd encourage you to take some time, think about it, pray about it. And even if you don't decide right now, you know, obviously this is not like any kind of deadline or anything like that. But something certainly to think about. I would just remind you about communion. If you're not a believer or not sure where you stand in the faith, you know, I just encourage you to abstain from this. But maybe think about where you stand with God um, and even ask him, you know, for help or for guidance if you would like that. And so let me pray for us and then we'll just, oh, I'm sorry, praise. Why don't you guys come up? <clears throat> And let's, um, I'll pray for us, and then we can, we can go ahead and take communion. Father God, we, we thank you so much for what Christmas means, God, that the incarnation is about you becoming flesh, and you, you did that. You have done that so that we can step into this better covenant with better promises. God, you know, the old covenant which we are prone to, which our hearts are prone to, back to the law, you know, back to the checklists, you know, back to the ways in which we kind of judge our lives and the ways in which we think. You know, we want to be free of that, God. We don't want, we don't want that to be the way that we view our lives, whether it's moralistic, God, whether it is success in the eyes of the world, God, whether it is... Um, kind of where we stand uh, status-wise according to what the world says, uh, we really want to just step into to you, God. We want to step into this intimate relationship with you. We want to step into your presence, God, and declare that that is so much greater than your blessings. I mean, your blessings are great, God, but they point to the greater idea that, that, that you're real and that you're here for us, Jesus. That's what you becoming flesh was all about. That we could talk to you one-on-one, -on -one. God. We don't need a mediator. That we could be forgiven of our sins by you directly, God. We don't have to go to some confessional, God. We don't have to sacrifice some animal, God, that you are there for us that you give us your spirit that we can grow closer to you that we can even become like you I mean what a gift God what a what a true blessing God that is we pray that you would give us courage and that you would give us faith in this season to not only step into that God but to invite the others around us into that as well we entrust it to you God please bless this time of communion bless the bread, bless the fruit of the vine, representative of your body and your blood as we take it. We pray, God, just for your special, um, kind of your special blessing, God, to be even on this experience. We entrust it to you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.